Joshua chapter 6. We're continuing through this chapter. This is one of the biggie chapters in the book of Joshua. Really, it is uh, the siege against Jericho, where the walls of Jericho come down, and it's a, a rich chapter. There's so many wonderful things in the Word of God in this chapter, so we're just taking our time through it. We started it last week. We'll make a little progress this week, and we'll probably be in it for a couple more weeks after that, but we're in no hurry. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back, man. So, we're in no hurry. We'll take our time through Joshua chapter 6. There's lots of good stuff here. Before we get into it, let's pray together again. Lord, we come to your word now. It's been a joy this morning to come into your house and to see one another and to love one another and to be loved. It's been great to worship you. It's wonderful to join with what's already happening in the heavenlies. 24-7 in the heavens, the angels are worshiping around your throne, and it's a privilege and a joy, and it's fun, Lord, for us to be able to join with the sounds in the heart of heaven and worship you. And then to come before your throne of grace, bringing brothers and sisters before you in the house of prayer, thank you for that privilege. And now we come to your word. And this is the part where, Lord, we want you to speak to us, because you're our father, and you're our king. You're our lover and our best friend and our commander. You're the savior of our souls. We want to hear from you. Jesus, you alone have the words of life. And so we quiet every other voice in our hearts and in our heads and in the sanctuary. And we want to hear from you. Lord, I ask that you would anoint me. We don't want to hear from a man and we don't want a man to get in the way. So I ask humbly, Lord, that you would anoint me and that every word that comes from this mouth would be from your throne and that it would be a blessing to your people and the building up of your church. Jesus, you said that you would build your church. So Jesus, come by your spirit and build your church now through the teaching of your holy word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you weren't here for the sermon last week, you're going to want to get a hold of that. Uh, because it'll give you a more complete understanding of what we're going to talk about this week as well as in the coming weeks. There's several ways to do that. You could stop by the resource table and get a CD or a DVD. You could go online to iTunes and you sub can subscribe for the video cast or the podcast. You could go to our website and you could download the MP3. There's lots of ways for you to do that, but uh, th there's a, a wonderful story here in Joshua 6. And because we're moving through it so slowly, I don't want you to lose the big picture. I don't want you to miss some very important parts. And last week was foundational, very important. So if you weren't here last week, please, I encourage you to listen to that message. It'll give you a better understanding of this week and the weeks to come. But just by way of a very brief review to lay a little groundwork for this morning's message, remember that what we saw last week at the end of chapter five was Joshua's encounter with the Lord. There's no question about it that it was the Lord, and it was wonderful of the Lord to appear to Joshua at this time and bless him with a knowledge of his sovereignty and to give to Joshua, who was himself a great military strategist and tactician, to give to Joshua a strategy for taking Jericho. It was a strategy that was otherworldly, to be sure. It wasn't something that Joshua ever could have cooked up in and of himself. It was a strategy from the Lord, and the Lord gave it to him. Now, it, it seems strange to Joshua's ears, I'm sure, as it seems strange to ours. And what we saw, just to review that in the first 10 verses, we saw that in verse 3, they were commanded to march around the city once a day for six days. Okay? 
For the next six days, Israel would march around that walled city of Jericho just once a day. We saw in verse 10 last week that they were to remain silent the whole time. This whole week, they weren't to speak, they weren't to utter a noise, they weren't to say a single word, but they were to be silent. And we spoke about last week why that might have been. And then we read in verse 4 that there were to be seven priests. And these seven priests were each to have a shofar, a trumpet made of a ram's horn. And then on the seventh day, this procession would march around Jericho seven times. And then there would come a moment where the priests would blow the shofar, the ram's horn, the trumpet made of a ram's horn, and then the people would shout. And at that moment, not a moment before, the walls would come tumbling down and the people would go in and take the city. We discern there as we did a little bit of biblical math that they would have walked around that city a total of 13 times. And we spoke about last week why they would have done that so many times. And what, it, what else was profound from last week was the way that God organized the people for this holy procession. You'll remember that the warriors were to be at the front of the procession. And then the priests with the ram's horns, and then the ark of God, and then the rear guard, which would have been made up of more warriors and some of the population in general. And, and that was the organization of the people to take the city as ordained by God. And we spoke about the fact, the profundity of the fact, that the ark was in the middle of the people. And you'll remember that the ark of God represents the power, the presence, and the person of God. And that was to be in the middle of the people of God if they were to experience the victory of God. Amen. And so it is in the church today. We're to organize our individual lives and our corporate lives such that Jesus is enthroned upon the center. Amen? So that it's very clear, should we lose our direction? Should we become discombobulated? Should, should somebody come into our midst and wonder, what are these people all about? It should be very easy for them and for us to discern in those moments, we are about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we spoke about those things last week. And with this God-ordained strategy, the people of Israel would take the city of Jericho. Let's read as the story unfolds a little further now, starting in verse 10 and going to verse 16. Verse 10 of Joshua 6, But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I tell you, shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling at once. Then they came into camp and spent the night in camp. There's the end of the first day. Verse 12. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Verse 14, thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp, and they did so for six days. Then it came about on the seventh day that they rose early in the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner only seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. Verse 16, and it came about at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
So we see that they obeyed the Lord. They obeyed the Lord in the details, and they persevered in their obedience, which is very important for you and I. The uh, Christian history in the Bible itself is full of men and women of God who started well, but petered out somewhere along the way and didn't finish well. And we don't want that to be our story. We want to finish well. And we see here, in this instance, Israel finishing well. They went the full seven days obeying the Lord for the entirety of the time. And then they experienced that victory. We will see next week in our study that the walls indeed came down in a very particular way and allowed them to enter the city in a particular way. We'll see that next week. But what made this victory possible is what we saw in verse 2 of last week. We looked at it, and just by way of review, it says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, look, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. We noted last week that that statement was in past tense. The Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho and its king and its valiant warriors. The Lord had already accomplished it. The Lord had already done it. It was tetelestai. It was finished. The deal was done in the heart and the mind of the Lord. He had accomplished the victory on their behalf. And when the Lord appeared to Joshua and told him these things, he was reminding him of the simple fact that we need to be reminded of today. And that's this, that the battle belongs to the Lord. We are a part of the battle. We have a role and a part to play, to be sure. But the battle and the victory depends upon and belongs to the Lord. And the Lord loves to fight on behalf of his people. The Lord loves to get the victory on behalf of his people. Look at Isaiah 64, 4. It says, For from old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen a God besides thee who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. And that's the position that Israel found themselves in for seven days, waiting for the Lord, just obeying and waiting. So much of the Christian life is that. You know, the Lord doesn't give us the long-term plan, does he? He doesn't give us the five-year and the ten-year. He doesn't lay it out point by point and detail by detail. The Lord doesn't do that. He may give us glimpses, but he doesn't give you the blow by blow. So much of the Christian life is obeying and waiting on the Lord. And the Bible declares, the ear is not heard and eye has not seen such a God who acts on behalf of those who diligently wait on him. Psalm 146 verse 5 says, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. When you come to difficult times and life is so full of them, Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. And then he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When you come up against difficult, heartbreaking, heart-wrenching times, the Bible says here, blessed or happy is the man whose help is the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, and whose hope is in the Lord God. Now you've got to think about your life a little bit. And when it starts to get weird, when it starts to get gnarly, really, what do you hope in? Too often we hope in other people. Too often our help is our own resources or our own ingenuity. The Lord wants to be that for you. There's no other God like him who longs to be that for their people. And so we should let the Lord be our hope and our help in difficult times. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I love that story. One of the uh, richest stories in all the Bible for me personally. 
We have there King Jehoshaphat, who was one of the good kings. And there he was ruling over Israel, and all was pretty good, until several of the surrounding nations came in a conglomeration against him in Israel. And Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord, and I love his prayer. He said, Lord, these are overwhelming odds. We don't know what to do. We don't have the resources. We don't have the know-how. But our eyes are fixed on thee. Lord, we can't see the end of this situation. We don't know how it's going to pan out. We don't know how we will ever get the victory. But our eyes are fixed on you, Lord. And doesn't that bring to mind for our little New Testament brains, Hebrews chapter 12? where we're told to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the finisher, the completer of our faith, Christ Jesus. He said, Lord, there's not much we know. We know that we're scared. But our eyes are fixed on you. And they inquired of the Lord, and the Lord sent a prophet to Jehoshaphat and the people in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And the prophet delivered the word of the Lord, and it goes thusly in Second Chronicles 20, 15, and 17. The prophet said, don't fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You need not fight this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah, O Yerushalayim, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Notice what the prophet said. You don't have to be afraid. Our God is not a God of fear. His perfect love casts out fear. When you're hearing the voice of God, it will always be along those lines. It will always be comforting and casting fear out of our hearts. And the prophet said, the battle's not yours. It's the Lord's. The battle's not yours. It's the Lord. You don't have to fight this battle, but just watch what the Lord does. And yet they did not eliminate them from playing a role. The outcome of the battle depended on and depends upon the Lord. His might his strength, his faithfulness, the fact that he is the ruler and the king of the universe. And the battle is the Lord's. And yet we play a role. The, the, the prophet then said, tomorrow go out and face them. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't turn tail and run. Uh, don't, don't just do nothing. Go out and face the enemy. The Lord is with you. And it's very interesting how they got the victory in this particular instance. The Lord told them to just send the worship team out into the battlefield. Those who sing praises to the Lord in holy attire. And so the worship team early in the morning walked out into the midst of the battlefield. And there we had all the other nations, this conglomeration, this overwhelming force on the other side of the valley watching Israel with these people in their little praise robes come down into the valley. And they walked down into the middle of the valley and they just begin to sing praises to the Lord. Now, Psalm 22 says that the Lord is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So what they did was they enthroned the Lord in the midst of the battle. Great strategy, men. Great strategy, women. As, as men and, and fathers and heads of households, as you think of the battle that unfolds in your home, for your marriage and for your children, men, what you ought to do is build an altar of praise in the midst of it. In the midst of the battle, you come right against the enemy and you build an altar of praise and thereby enthrone Jesus Christ in your home. Now what worship does, what praise does, is it confounds and confuses the enemy. We're told that the Lord set an ambush for the enemy as Israel worshipped him. 
The Lord then came in. That was their role. The Lord came in now, fulfilled his part, set an ambush for the enemy, and the enemy was so confused, so confounded, that they turned upon one another and slaughtered one another till there wasn't a single one left. There again, we see that the Lord refuses to be put in a box. Sometimes he says, march around the city. Sometimes he says, sing praises in the midst of the battlefield. He refuses to be put in a box of any sort. The Lord is able to work in different and in wonderful ways. And what got the victory on this occasion was praise in the midst of the battle. Great lesson for you and I. You know, so often in the midst of the battle, we begin to moan and groan and complain and gripe and whine and cry, don't we? And I'll tell you what that does. It plays right into the hands of the enemy. The enemy loves to get us in that place. If the enemy can get us having a pity party, the enemy can get us isolated, moaning and groaning over ourselves, and then we're easy prey, pray for him. But if we're attentive to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God gets us praising in the midst of the trial, worshiping in the midst of the battle, and we enthrone Jesus Christ upon our lives, and we join with the heavenlies, and we live for the heavenlies at that moment, then there's something that's wonderful. When we worship the Lord, we are fearing and we are in awe and we are reverencing him. And the Bible says that the angel of the Lord encamps about those who fear the Lord. And then the victory is realized in that midst, in that moment, through that strategy. Now, in our text in Joshua, Joshua and the Israelites are fighting from a place of victory. The enemy is already defeated. They're fighting from a place of victory because the Lord says, I've already delivered the city to you. All that they had to do then was be very careful to obey the Lord and wait for the trump and the shout and the walls would come down. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again. It's not a bad thing. I've mentioned it every Sunday until the rapture of the church, but it's this, that Satan is a defeated foe. Satan is a defeated foe and the victory is already ours. And so when we encounter spiritual battles in our life, we fight from a place of victory. Do you know what that means that you fight from a place of victory? It means that you can fight valiantly. It means that you fight apart from ambiguity. There's no uncertainty. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Wait a minute. You have Romans 8.28 already. That God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is going to work good in the midst of it. You already have Romans chapter 5, that we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character brings about hope, and hope brings about, or proven character brings about hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. We have these scriptures, we have this truth, and so we fight from a place of victory, free from ambiguity, free from intimidation, not overwhelmed by fear, not overcome. We may be pressed, but we are not destroyed. We are more than overcomers, more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And so when the enemy comes against you, fight valiantly. The battle belongs to the Lord. Stand and watch the Lord get the victory. He's already won on the cross, but you play a role. So often it's just to stand firm against the enemy, as James 4 says. Oftentimes it's to build an altar of praise in the midst. Other times it's to speak forth and lay hold of the word of God, whatever it may be. We fight from a place of victory. But there were, for Israel at this moment, two specific things that they were asked to do. 
They were asked to blow the trumpet made of ram's horn, the shofar, and they were asked to shout. They had to do those two things, and then the walls would come down. If they neglected to do those things, I imagine the walls simply would not have come down. That was God's prescribed methodology. They had to blow the ram's horn, and then they had to shout. Now, the trumpet mentioned here in the text is a trumpet made of ram's horn. It's called a shofar in Hebrew. I have one here that I'll show you. This is a shofar. This is a big old ram's horn. Can you imagine that? <laughs> a giant ram's horn. I got this on one of my trips to Israel, and you've heard me blow it occasionally uh, before services, and we'll blow it during the sermon for you today. But it would have looked something like this, perhaps larger, perhaps smaller, perhaps straighter. We don't know. There are no two in the world that are exactly alike. But it was this sort of instrument that they were called to blow before they would see the walls come down. Now, the shofar loomed large in the mind of the Israelites. It had so much to do with their corporate life and their life with God. And it became a very important sound and still is in the life of Israel. It started early on in their corporate history in the book of Exodus chapter 19. And I'll just show you a couple of verses from Exodus 19. This is what unfolded at Mount Sinai. It says in Exodus 19 verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Now that's the same word in Hebrew as shofar. In the Old Testament, there's some different kinds of trumpets. When you see the English word trumpet, it's not always shofar, but you could do a word study and find out that this is indeed here, the ram's horn. There was a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain, verse 18. And Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. So in the corporate life of Israel, very early on in their history, the shofar becomes synonymous with, or at least representative of, the presence and power of God in the midst of his people. Anytime they would hear or see the shofar, it would bring to mind this moment when the sound of the shofar was so great it caused the people to tremble. And the very presence of God was made manifest in their leader, Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. And then just after that in the book of Leviticus, same period of history in Leviticus 25, we read this in verses 9 and 10. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. Now, what's spoken of in verse 10 is a year of jubilee. It came every 50 years. And in that time, all debts in Israel were canceled. Wouldn't you love that? All of the slaves were set free. 
And all land was returned to its original owners. And, and what signaled this was the blowing of the shofar once again. So again now in history, the shofar becomes not only representative of the presence and the power of God, but it becomes representative of release and freedom by the word of God. As it was blown on the Day of Atonement and on the 50th year at the Jubilee, it pictured and brought to mind for Israel release and freedom. And every year they blew it on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in Hebrew, as it says in verse 9. And still now, the Jews blow on the Day of Atonement. We will happen to be on our next Israel trip this September in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, on the day of Yom Kippur. And we will hear the sound of the shofar echoing through the city from the Temple Mount. So they would blow it every Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so then the shofar also took on this idea of their sins being covered. Because it was once a year that the sins of the whole nation were atoned for on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the day, the only day, that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat. And the sins of the nation would be covered for one more year. So Israel hears the shofar, and it evokes for them the sounds that signify the presence and the power of God, the release and freedom that comes from God's word, and the covering that comes from the sacrifice that, God's provide, that God provides. It also was for Israel the sound of coming restoration. We know that Israel would, from period to period and time to time, be removed from the land, but God always promised them restoration. And we're seeing a fulfillment of one of the restorations at our moment in history. And the sound of the shofar becomes for Israel the sound of restoration. It says in Isaiah 27, 13, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord and the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So it became the sound of restoration for them when they would be restored to the place of worship and into the presence of God. Now here's what's neat for you and I. It's very easy for us to see how Jesus fulfills the sounds of the shofar. Jesus is the fulfillment of every blowing of the shofar that ever took place or ever does take place in Israel. Because Jesus is the presence and the power of God made manifest. The fulfillment of that blowing of the shofar. Jesus is the one who frees us and releases us, and he's the one who cancels our debt by his blood spilled on the cross, fulfilling the blowing of the shofar. And he is the one who restores our souls, even as he is the one who will restore ultimately Israel to her land in the fulfillment of the kingdom. And so for you and I, it becomes now very, very wonderful as we, as we look at history and we hear the sounds of history and we'll hear the sound today of the shofar, that it's the sound of Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior and our King. It's the sound that speaks of everything that he is. He's the fulfillment of all those promises. Remember from last week, every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so it's no surprise then 
that when Jesus comes at the second coming, after the tribulation period, when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth, that he will come with the sound of the ram's horn once again. Turn to Matthew 24 as we look at that. Matthew chapter 24, known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus reveals much about the end times and his second coming. We're going to start reading Matthew 24, verse 29. This is about the second coming of the Lord. It says in Matthew 24, verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, okay? Very clear what time period we're in. It's after the great tribulation, after that seven-year period, okay? That's when the Lord comes back to establish his kingdom. No question about that. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Everything's changing, man. Verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. There will be no ambiguity on that day. There are certain cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that the Lord has already returned. Listen, if the Lord came, the world would know it. There will be no ambiguity on that day. As lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Lord be. Every eye will see it on that day. He will come in the clouds with power and glory. He came first time as a suffering servant. And he came lowly and seated on a donkey. He will come the second time as a conquering king. And he will come mighty and seated on a white horse with power and great glory. And there will be a sound that is heard in the heavens, the shofar. Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Again there, it is a ram's horn that is pictured. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. His elect in this context being the Jewish people and the ultimate ingathering to Israel as he establishes his kingdom and rules and reigns from the throne of David in Israel from Jerusalem. So isn't that glorious? That when the Lord comes, this historical sound that we'll hear today will be the sound that is heard throughout the universe in the skies. There will come this great trump of God. And then he will establish his kingdom. And thus the Lord shall rule and reign and we with him. Amen? Now, there's something more about the shofar that you ought to know. It's very clear in our text of Joshua that it is the sound of war. Because they blow it at the moment of war. They blow it for the, the onset of battle. And, and certainly that's part of the Old Testament imagery. All throughout the Old Testament for Israel, the shofar is the sound of war. We see it pictured potently in Jeremiah 4.19 where it says, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart, my heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the shofar, the alarm of war. So we add that now to our load of imagery of the shofar. It's the sound of war. But 
In Israel, there were two different kinds of trumpets that pertained to war. In Numbers chapter 10, we read about trumpets made of silver. There were two of them for Israel. There were trumpets made of silver. These were different from the trumpets made of the ram's horn. Both of them were used in a time of war to muster the people, but for different purposes, in different instances. There was a moment for the silver horn, and there was a moment for the ram's horn. Now we learn about the moment for the silver trumpets in Numbers 9. We see that they were a defensive alarm, a defensive alarm to mobilize the people. Numbers chapter 10 verse 9. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary, who attacks you? Okay, this is the adversary attacking them. Then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. In Hebrew, it's referring to now the silver trumpets. That you may be remembered before the Lord your God and may be saved from your enemies. So the silver trumpets were a defensive alarm for war. And it was a sound of faith that you might be remembered before your God. It's not that God forgets his people, he doesn't. But it's God's people expressing faith in the fact that God remembers them and that the battle belongs to the Lord. But the silver trumpets were the defensive war sound. Now the shofar, as we hear in Joshua 6, was the offensive sound of war. These were the uh, uh, horns that would sound the alarm to call the people to battle or commence the attack, as we read in Joshua 6, 5. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, same word, shofar, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Same thing in Judges chapter 7 with the battle of Gideon that we spoke of last week. The way that they got the victory was sounding the shofars, only at that time they had 300 of them. We read in Judges chapter 7 verse 22, And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled. So the shofar is for Israel, for you and I who have been grafted into the promises of Israel, the offensive sound of war. Now listen to me. When it comes to our enemy, Satan, Jesus Christ, our victor, is on the offense. He's on the move. He's on the offensive. Listen to me. Jesus said at Caesarea Philippi, a place where we will go this September, we'll stand in the very same place where Jesus said these words in Israel. He said there in Matthew 16, verse 18, to his disciples, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice Jesus said that he builds his church. He builds it, it's his church. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive mechanism. You don't go on the offense with gates. Here we come with our gates against you. No. Gates are a defensive mechanism. Jesus Christ declared warfare on hell and said that he is on the offense. And that the gates of hell, the security of hell, the gates that want to keep people bound in hell and going to hell would not prevail against the lamb and the lion of God, Jesus Christ. 
He is on the offense. The light has come into the world. And so his church also should be on the offense against the gates of hell. We are not on the defense. We are on the offense against the powers of hell. Jesus gave his disciples authority over demons in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus told them to go out and practice that authority, excuse me, in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus told them to go out and practice that authority in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and they experienced that they had authority in the demonic realm, and so does his church. Why not? We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives. The, the, the United States does not send an ambassador to a foreign country without authority from the United States. Jesus Christ does not send his church into this world without authority from our king. We need to remember, sometimes in the spiritual realm, we need to do what one intercessor once told me we need to do. We need to declare in the spiritual realm what's what and who's who. That Jesus Christ is the king and the gates of hell will not stand against him and his church. So we are to be on the offense and we are to sound the sound of victory as a church. And so let's listen now to that sound. Let's listen to the shofar. I'm going to bring Brother Mike up because he knows how to play the trumpet. And uh, Brother Mike is going to blow the shofar for us. Here is this ancient sound for thousands of years. It evokes so much imagery in all of Israel. Okay, Mike, give us a big juicy one, brother. Right in the mic. He has a trumpet made of silver. Silver trumpets were also something that was blown in the Bible. And so now we're going to blow them together. We're going to blow the shofar and the silver trumpet and see how they sound together. I love it. That's the sound of victory. That's a rally to war, church. Our king is a great and awesome king. You see, but it is for you and I, it's more than just a sound, isn't it? It doesn't work if you just blow an instrument. It's a condition of the heart. It's an expression of faith. It's a condition of the heart and an expression of faith. We're expressing in our hearts that we are yielded to God and that we trust God, that we believe that he is victorious, that he will prevail against his enemies, and that he is coming again as a conquering king. It's got to be a thing of faith. It's not merely a sound. It's the reality of faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 says this, that the walls of Jericho came down by faith. It wasn't merely a sound. It wasn't just the trump. It wasn't just the shout. It was the faith behind these things. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. He, uh, Hebrews 11, 6 says, and Jesus said, if we just have a little bit of faith, we can move mountains. 
Just a little bit of faith. So the reality of these things is faith. Faith in who the Lord is, what he has said, and what he is and will do. I want to remind you, we're not done yet. Don't get shifty. I want to remind you, a theme verse, possibly the theme verse for our church, Isaiah 42, 12, and 13. Let them, that's you and I, Give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will erase his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. And that's what we have faith in. Faith in the fact that the Lord is victorious over sin and death and the devil and that he will deliver us into glory on that day. And notice that there is a shout that the Lord himself will utter. There is a war cry. And there was the shout that Joshua and the nation were to let forth. Now, I just want to tell you something very briefly about that shout. It was a particular shout. In the Hebrew from Joshua chapter 6, the word is ruah in Hebrew. Ruah, it's a certain kind of shout. There are other shouts in the Bible. This is a certain one. This Hebrew word ruah is mentioned 33 times in the Old Testament. It was used this way. It was used to describe the war cry given just before an army rushed into battle. So it's the one spoken of in Joshua. It was also used to describe the shout of joy that would go up in response to the Lord's activity on behalf of his people. It was also used to express triumph and victory over a foe. This Hebrew concept, ruah, this certain shout. This Hebrew word is used frequently in the Psalms. I'll give you some examples. In Psalm 66, 1, it says, Shout joyfully to God. All the earth sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Psalm 95 uses the Hebrew word ruah when it says in the first two verses, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Psalm 98, 4 and 6 uses the same word, ruah. Shout joyfully to the Lord. All the earth break forth and sing for joy and sing praises with trumpets and with the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. In Psalm 100, same thing. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. This is biblical worship, people. That's why I get so concerned when I see the church in America with their mouth closed and their hands in their pocket. It speaks to me that they don't know God or the Word of God. The Word of God says that we ought to shout to the Lord. This Hebrew verb, ruah, the shout of victory, the shout of passion, this war cry, the shout of celebration is what ought to be heard among his people who celebrate the king. And that is the same shout that went forward from Joshua that day. It was the shout that they were commanded by the Lord to let loose in the midst of the battle and so experience the victory. Let me just ask you now as we close by way of application. What is the shout that comes forth from your life when times get difficult? When things aren't going how, they, how you expect them to or want them to? Over a long period of time or in a moment or in an instant, what is the shout that comes from your life, from your mouth?
Because the Bible declares that that shout will expose what's in your heart. What is that shout? Christians, for us, it can be, and it should be, a shout of victory, a shout of praise, a shout of triumph, a shout of faith, a shout that declares, even though my world is falling apart, I will trust in his name. Lord, I don't see how it's going to go. I don't see where it's going. But my eyes are fixed on you. And all the earth will shout to the Lord and declare his praise. What is the shout that comes forth from your life in the battle and in difficult times? I know too often for myself, it's grumbling and complaining and moaning and groaning and backbiting when it ought to be praising and declaring and extolling and proclaiming that he is my triumphant king and that he is absolutely faithful. I want us to see now the trump and the shout come together in Psalm 47. Psalm 47 as we close there. Turn there if you would. Psalm 47. This is a wonderful psalm. It's been a blessing to me the last couple of weeks. Psalm 47, the title of it, if your Bible has the title, is God the King of the Earth. I like that. Psalm 47, verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Now here we see the shout and the trump, the shofar come together in verse 5. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trump. There it is. God has ascended with ruah, that shout. And the Lord with the sound of the shofar. Therefore, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our God, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over all the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now there's one final place where we see the shout and the trump come together. Notice that it said here in our text, verse 5 of Psalm 47, that God ascended with the shout and with the trump. Well, church, we at this moment are listening for a shout and a trump. Only this time, the Lord won't ascend. We will ascend unto him. It's called the rapture of the church. It happens with a shout and a trump, the shofar. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 on the PowerPoint. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. You know how big that voice is? When the angel sang in Isaiah chapter 6, the threshold of the temple shook. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet, the shofar of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We are waiting for the shout of Michael the archangel and the sound of the shofar in that moment in the twinkling of an eye the dead in Christ shall be raised, raised first and we who are alive in Maine will be transformed into glory and we shall meet the Lord in the sky and so we shall ever be with the Lord church the Bible declares this to be the blessed hope that moment that we look forward to when the Lord comes for those who are his and so this sound ought to become very real to us now in the faith that it represents. The faith that it represents. And, and the fulfillment who is the person of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, Christian, are you living in the reality of the shout and the shofar? Because Jesus himself is a reality. He's a manifestation of the presence and the power of God. He's the one who frees us and cancels our debt. He's the one who restores our soul and will restore Israel. He's the one who gives us victory over the enemy. He's the one who is coming for the church. And as I said, the shout and the war cry, at the very least, are a condition of a heart and an expression of faith, reminding ourselves that the Lord is a warrior who himself will utter a shout and will prevail against his enemies. It's a declaration of faith that we will commit ourselves to walking in his ways. It's a conditioning of praise. It's conditioning our lives, building altars of praise in our lives like David did. It's living from freedom. It's living in freedom from the power of sin and the enemy. And it is living in expectancy as we look and listen for the shout of the archangel and the trump of God. And at that moment, I'll see you in heaven. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for these incredible truths. Wow, Lord, your word is awesome. These truths are so rich and wonderful to us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and make these things real, Lord. And the faith that is behind them, we don't want to get caught up in symbols and sounds. We want to walk in faith, the reality, it's you. Jesus, you are the power behind the promise. And so, Spirit of God, come manifest the person of Jesus in our midst. Return us to the heart of worship, Lord. We're sorry for all the ways that we've cluttered, cluttered the simplicity of loving you and blessing you. We want to enthrone you upon the praises. We want to build an altar right here, Lord. You are worthy. Communion is here. The carpets are here. Prayer team is here if you need help. Let's bless our King.